Well, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 128, and we're going to look this morning at all six verses. Psalm 128, we'll start in a moment in verse 1. A few years ago, there was a woman by the name of Christina Hoff who wrote an article for the Weekly Standard called Being a Man. And in that article, she talked about what she said is the most neglected memorial in Washington, D.C. If you've ever been to our nation's capital, you know it is full of memorials. I absolutely love to go visit them. I didn't even know this memorial existed. It is the memorial that was built in honor of the men who died in the sinking of the Titanic. Did you know that on that day, April 15th, 1912, when the Titanic sunk, that 77% of the women on board survived, but 80% of the men on board died? You know why that is so? As the ship began to sink and they had to fill up the lifeboats, they really did believe in that old adage, women and children first. In 1931, they erected this 18-foot-tall granite statue of this man holding out his arms, and there is this inscription that says, to the brave men who perished in the wreck of the Titanic, April 15th, 1912, they gave their lives that women and children might be saved it says beneath, erected by the women of America. In this article that Christina Hoff wrote, she said that no one visits this memorial anymore. She said they don't have any more annual gatherings on the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And according to Christina Hoff, she sees that as a very good thing. She said, quote, the idea of male gallantry makes many women nervous, suggesting that women require special protection. It implies that the sexes are objectively different. They are, by the way. It tells us that some things are better left to men. And then she added this, gallantry is a virtue that dare not speak its name. Well, as I look at that statue, I cannot help but think if we could somehow capture in one image what it is that we have lost, that's it. Do you realize that the overwhelming majority of men who died in the sinking of the Titanic were fathers who were protecting their families? Because there was this understanding that fathers have a responsibility not to use and abuse, but a responsibility to protect and to defend. But I believe that when you look at what is happening in our nation today, and when you see all of the societal ills that stem from fatherlessness, when you think about things like crime and depression and suicide rates among young people, when you see the high school dropout rates, all of these go up when the rate of fathers present in the home goes down. And it would seem like our real problem is the lack of the kind of men and the lack of the kind of fathers that Christina Hoff was actually complaining about. 
Well, this morning I want to talk to you about a blessed father. Our text is Psalm 128. This belongs to a section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent because back then they had a tradition that there were certain songs that you would sing as you were ascending and as you were going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. Now, this psalm is for everyone. You don't have to be a dad in order to learn from this, in order to find principles here that apply to your life. It is clear, however, that this psalm was written with fathers in mind. And the writer of this psalm, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees fatherhood as the key to the well-being of the family, but the well-being of the nation as well. And we're going to see as we read through this psalm that a father who is truly blessed by the Lord, he is known for certain things. And we're going to see four things in our text this morning that this kind of father is known for. First of all, he is known for the character he possesses. He is known for the character he possesses. Look with me at verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Notice that word, blessed. In the Hebrew, it is plural. I've heard some say that you could translate this, blessings upon blessings. Isn't that what we want in our homes and our families today? Blessings upon blessings. And these blessings are for everyone, as we read further in the psalm, it's particularly applied to fathers, but they are blessed who do two things. First, he said, blessed are those who fear the Lord. Now, when we use the word fear, we normally use it in a negative sense. You have a, an appointment with a doctor, you fear what the result might be. But in this case, the word is not used negatively, it's used positively because it is the fear of the Lord we are talking about. And this kind of fear, it is a reverence for God. This kind of fear is a respect for God's authority. This kind of fear is a belief in God's judgment. This kind of fear is a sense of awe in light of who God is. I would also claim that there is an element of trembling in this kind of fear as well. It's the kind of fear that we see in Isaiah 6 when he saw just a glimpse of the Lord's glory and fell upon his face. The psalmist says that the one who has this kind of fear is blessed. Blessings upon blessings will belong to those who fear him, but also those who walk in his ways. Those who walk in his ways, fearing God and walking in his ways really are like two sides of the same coin. They just go together. To walk in his ways means you order your life according to the word of God. This is talking about your conduct. This is about your integrity. This is about your character. This is about a man setting an example that is worthy of others to follow. I heard somebody say once, don't worry if your children do not listen to everything you say, worry because they are watching everything you do. Well, fathers, we know that children are always watching us, and that is why it's so important that you fear the Lord and that you walk in the ways of the Lord because you cannot teach them what you don't know. 
And you cannot take them where you haven't been. And you cannot give them what you do not possess. Your children need to be convinced, absolutely convinced, that fearing God and walking in His ways will result in blessings upon blessings. It is imperative that your children see this in your life so that they can grow up and say, hey, I know this works because I've seen this lived out in the life of my father. I want you to notice what the psalmist does here. He talks about the fear of God in verse 1. And then in verse 3, he's going to mention the wife and the children. But then he goes back to this theme of fear in verse 4 and says, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So on both sides of verse 3, where you have the wife and children, you have a man, a husband, a father who fears God with his wife and children sandwiched in between. But if you don't have fathers who have a good and healthy fear of God. I'm not talking about a harsh, abusive kind of fear. But if you don't have fathers with a good and healthy fear of God, you're not going to have children who have a good and healthy fear or respect for authority. And when there is no respect for authority in a society, chaos is the result. Eventually, we're going to have one kind of fear or another. There's either going to be a fear of God and a fear for authority, or else there will be that other kind of fear. The kind of fear when you fear what happens to your children when you drop them off at school. The kind of fear when you fear going out at night, but one kind of fear or another. At this point, let me just remind you that what we're seeing in this psalm really is a principle for a society. This doesn't mean that God cannot work outside of this. Some of you who are here today, you didn't have the opportunity to grow up in a home with a godly father. I was blessed to know a godly father later in his life, but my dad did not come to know the Lord until I was almost grown. So I did not grow up with a godly dad, and for many years of my upbringing, I was actually raised by my grandmother. And so some of you, you might be in a similar situation this morning. And if you are, can I just remind you of what Psalm 68 verse 5 says? That God is a father to the fatherless. God can work in any home. He can work in any situation, even when a godly father is not present. But even when there's not a godly father in the home, it is important that we understand what is this biblical standard so that we can know it and promote it and pass it off to that next generation. God can work in any situation individually, but when it comes to a society, fathers, it really does start with you because without you, there are no amount of government programs we can implement. There's no amount of uh, money that we can throw at the problems we will have in order to make up for what you are called to do. You simply living your life before your children so that they can actually see you fearing God and walking in His ways. Just modeling for them what it means to be a man of God. Listen, fathers, if you do that, I tell you that will be enough. Maybe you won't climb as high up the corporate ladder as you wanted to. 
And maybe you won't get the raise or the promotion that you long for. And maybe some of you won't be able to give to your children all the material things that you wanted to give them. But if you give them this one thing, you will have given them enough. The example of a godly father. A father that is truly blessed by the Lord. He is known for the character he possesses. But there's something else he is known for. He is also known for the contentment he enjoys. He's known for the contentment he enjoys. Notice verse 2. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Notice this man works and he provides. Ultimately, it's not about whether he's working from the neck up or the neck down. It's simply the fact that he works and he enjoys the fruit of his labor. There is something wonderful about honest work. There's something wonderful about working and providing and then going home and enjoying what God has given you. By the way, let me just insert here, young ladies, some handsome guy comes along and shows interest and asks for your digits. Um, ask him about his J-O-B. Because he might say that he loves you. Does he love you enough to apply himself and work and do what is necessary to be able to provide? Well, that's what this man does in verse 2. He works and the psalmist says to him, you will be happy and it will be well with you. It will be well with you. This is not the prosperity gospel. This isn't a promise of earthly riches. It's a promise that you will work and God will provide and he will make you content with what he has given. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. When you have someone who is godly, someone who knows the Lord and is walking with the Lord, and then you add to that contentment, this wonderful thing called contentment, a man is content with who he is and what he has. You take those two things, godliness and contentment, and you bring them together, and do you know what you have? You have the richest man in the world. I tell you, Elon Musk has nothing, nothing, on that guy. And yet, so many fathers drop the ball at home simply because they are not content. They spend their lives making a living, but not living a life. They have everything that money can buy, but nothing that money cannot buy. I meet so many men who are never content with what they have. If they make 50,000, they think they have to have 100. If they make 100, they think they have to have 200. No matter how big or beautiful the house they live in or the car they drive, they think they must have more, they must have better, and so they push themselves and they push themselves. And you know what happens? They wind up leaving their children behind. And so, fathers, one of the things that God has called you to do is to demonstrate for your children what this combination looks like when you have honest work and joyful contentment that come together. It's so important that they see that in your life. A blessed father is known for the contentment he 
enjoys. Let me share with you a third thing that he's known for. He's also known for the family he cultivates. He's known for the family he cultivates. Notice verse 3 says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Notice the first part of that verse. A man's wife is like a fruitful vine. There are many places where a vine can grow around a sign or a post around a tree, but never will a a vine grow more quickly or rapidly than up a wall. It'll start off at the base of the wall and then extend and go up, and in time it covers the entire wall. The psalmist is painting for us a picture here. We understand in verse 3 that the vine is the wife, but husbands, do you understand the context? Do you understand that you are that wall? A husband is to be to his wife what that wall is to the vine, that support, that strength, so that she can spread out her tendrils and grow up as she clings to him even higher for the glory of God. And I'm not saying that a woman must have a man in her life to be whom God wants her to be. But I'm saying that this particular woman who is married to this kind of man, she is going to grow like a vine attached to that wall because she has a husband who leads her and praises her and supports her and who praises her as well. Husbands, there are some questions that we need to ask ourselves when we read these, these verses. These are hard questions And I'm asking myself as well. I don't claim to have mastered all of these things. But husbands, we need to ask ourselves, am I cultivating my wife's relationship with the Lord? Can I honestly say that my wife is a more godly woman because she's married to me? Am I like that wall is to the vine on which she can grow? Notice the second half of this verse It says, your children like olive plants all around your table. Now, here's the picture. You have an olive tree. And around that olive tree, you have these little olive shoots that spring up left and right. And in the beginning, they are so small. But then they grow. And so you have this olive tree that is reproducing itself, that is multiplying in the olive plants all around it just like the godly man, is to multiply himself, his life, his character, and his walk with God in the lives of his children. So that these values in verses 1 and 4 of fearing God and walking in his ways would be replicated in the lives of the children in verse 3. I find it very interesting that the psalmist would choose to use an olive tree in order to make his point. An olive tree, I'm told, grows very slowly, but if you care for it, if you treat it right, under the right conditions, it will continue to bear fruit for at least 20 generations. Maybe that's why the psalmist chose the olive tree, because he's talking about something that lasts, something that endures. This is not the grass that withers. This is not the flower that fades. He's describing the Father as being like an olive tree that then produces even more olive trees. I told you earlier, I wasn't raised by a godly father, but I can tell you I did have a very godly grandmother, and I praise God for her. She was born in 1908. And as I said, she raised me for a number of years, and I can still remember to this day 
the stories my grandmother would tell me about her dad, Anson, who was born and who started his family in the late 19th century. But my grandma, when she was raising me, she would tell me about her dad and what a godly man he was and how he spiritually led his family, how he taught them the word of God and brought them to the house of God. And I think to myself, he made a decision in the late 19th century, and he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and here I am now in the 21st century, and I get to see with my own eyes that man's great-great-grandchildren serving the Lord. Guess what? I never had the opportunity of meeting Anson McCall, but I can tell you for a fact that his olive tree is still bearing fruit today. Well, we see in verse 3, the wife is like a vine, the children are like olive plants. What do they have in common? They all have to be cultivated. And so, fathers, God has given to you this all-important job of cultivating your family, helping them to be who God created them to be. And this doesn't happen by accident. It must be intentional. Well, this leads to one more thing that we're going to see in our text that a blessed father is known for. He is also known for the impact he makes. He is known for the impact he makes. Notice what it says in verses 5 and 6. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children Peace be upon Israel. I want you to notice that there is a connection between the godly man, godly husband, godly father in verse 1 and the blessings of Zion and Jerusalem in verses 5 and 6 and the peace of Israel in verse 6. Did you notice that? There's an expansion that's happening. It starts in verse 1, and then it keeps growing. It keeps getting bigger. What starts out as one blessed man in verses 1 and 4 becomes a blessed family in verse 3. That then becomes a blessed city in verse 5, which then becomes a blessed nation in verse 6. And notice, not just any nation. It says, peace be upon Israel. It is through Israel that God promised that not just Israel, but all nations would be blessed. God said one day, from this nation, there would come a Messiah, a Savior, whom we know as Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to earth. He lived the life we should have lived, a perfect life without sin. He then went to Calvary's cross and died the death we should have died. When he took the punishment for our sin upon himself so that through faith in him we can be saved. And now the Bible says, not just Israel, but whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so understand that the scope here of Psalm 128 
is not just Psalm 128. The scope of this chapter is not just the nation of Israel, but it is all of the nations. And likewise, dads, we are to raise our children with the idea that through them, the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. I call this Great Commission parenting. It's parenting and raising your children with the Great Commission in mind. This psalmist really seems to believe that the well-being of the nation is wrapped up in the well-being of the family. And the well-being of the family really is wrapped up in the well-being of the fathers. And there's another way as we look at this psalm that we see it starting off and then growing and expanding. I want you to notice it starts off with the blessedness of one person in verse 1, and then it extends to the blessedness of his children in verse 3, and then it extends to the blessedness of his grandchildren in verse 6. And so you notice three generations mentioned in this psalm. This is a multi-generational impact. If you want to know what this kind of multi-generational impact looks like, I can think of no better example for you than a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703, and he was a pastor and a preacher that God used in the American colonies in those days leading up to the birth of this nation. Uh, he preached what is probably still to this day the most famous sermon ever preached in America, an old sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he would take that sermon and go from town to town and just stare at it and read it like this, and yet God would bless it and anoint it, and everywhere he went, there were thousands and thousands of people who were saved. It changed our history. Well, not only did he preach that famous sermon, he later went on to become a missionary to the American Indians. He later went on to become the president of Princeton University. Now, does that seem like a lot for just one man in one lifetime? That's a lot of accomplishments. But let me ask you this question. Where did Jonathan Edwards really make his greatest impact? Was it as a preacher or a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary or a scholar? No. The greatest impact Jonathan Edwards made was on his home, his wife, Sarah, and his, are you listening, 11 children. The impact that he made upon them. Years later, in the year 1900, there was another man named A.W. Winship who did some research into the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. He wanted to know those 11 children, what did they do and then their children, and their children after them. Where did they go? What did they become? What did they accomplish? And so he did some research. And about 150 years after Jonathan Edwards died, A.W. Winship was able to locate and document about 1,400 of his descendants. And this is what he discovered. Thirteen became college presidents. 65 were professors, 100 lawyers, one law school dean, 33 judges, 66 physicians, 80 holders of public office, 
including three U.S. senators, three mayors of major U.S. cities, three governors, and one vice president of the United States. At least 100 of his descendants went out as missionaries, and at least another 100 of his descendants remain as pastors. A.W. Winship did all of this research into the descendants of Jonathan Edwards, and he came to this conclusion. This is what he said. There is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. What an incredible statement. It's hard to believe talking about somebody as great as Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest men in history, but his greatest impact was not as a preacher or a pastor or a missionary or a university president. His greatest impact really was at home on his wife and especially on his children. The example that he set for them, how he evangelized them, how he discipled them, everything that he taught them, which they then took and turned the world upside down. His greatest impact was at home. And men, if God has called you to be a father, more than likely your greatest impact is going to be at home as well. I heard Adrian Rogers say once, you can't do anything about your ancestors, but you can do something about your descendants. You can't have any impact on your ancestors, but you can have an impact, a long-lasting impact, a multi-generational impact on those who come after you. But fathers, it begins with you. It begins with you knowing God through Jesus Christ and following him and if you don't know him, you certainly can today. Would you join me as we go to the Lord right now in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the blessedness that belongs to those who fear you and those who walk in your ways. Blessings upon blessings. Oh God, that's what we want. That's what we need. We acknowledge, however, that we have not always feared you. We have failed to walk in your ways as we should. Therefore, we are sinners who've fallen short of your glory. And that's why you sent us a Savior. That's why you sent Jesus. We thank you for sending him to live a perfect life in our place and to die a horrible death in our place for our sin. And we thank you that through him, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We thank you that through Christ, you have opened up the door to heaven and eternal life to any who are willing to believe and come and enter in. So God, we pray for those who are here today who perhaps have never done that, that this would be their day of salvation, that day that they simply acknowledge that they're a sinner, that they need you, and that they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. God, I pray for every person who's present in this place. And God, I ask that in these moments you would help us to see how we can each individually apply what we've learned to our lives. And we realize this psalm isn't just for fathers. It's not exclusively for fathers. 
So help all of us, Lord, to, to see and understand and apply these principles. But I do pray especially for the dads who are here present today. Lord, we confess to you so often we fail in doing these things, but would you help us to set an example of a man who fears you, a man who walks in your ways? Would you help us to be content in all that you provided for us as we work honestly and as we work faithfully, that we would truly cultivate the families you've given to us, our wives and our children, and God, that we would see that impact that follows as our children are like arrows that we shoot into the spiritual darkness, pushing back darkness so that the gospel would go forth, so that your name would be praised, so that you would be worshipped to the ends of the earth. Because eventually, God, it's not about us. It's all about you. And that's what we pray would happen as a result of the way we lead our families today. And so show us, Lord, how you'd have us to respond to your word. And God, we'll give you the thanks. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name.